So the craziest thing happened this morning. Like, so um, I get this email from a guy I haven't talked to in 25 years. I worked with him at Guitar Center like 1996, right? Um, dude says, hey, man, I, I just saw your video online about Getty Lee. You did the book review. It was so cool. It's really cool. He goes, he goes, just wanted to let you know that I'm an author and I write romance novels. And I name the characters after people that I have known in my past. And this is the lead character in his best-selling novel. And it's about, so <laughs> it's about a motorcycle um, gang leader who is, I guess, romantic or something like that. And I'm like, of course it is. Fuck! I need to wear more leather. Wow. I guess. Well, it's funny because when I, I talked to my sister right after I talked to you, um, yeah. last week, and she's like, "Jeremy, Jeremy, how do I know? I know that name. How do I know that name?" And I said, "Spike." Welcome to the Mindful Mutiny Podcast. I'm Jeremy Van Wert, CEO, therapist, and transformational coach, helping you get unstuck from burnout and stagnation. On the Mindful Mutiny Podcast, we thoughtfully rebel against anything that keeps you from achieving your highest potential. Please do not forget to subscribe and like and leave a comment on this podcast wherever it is that you're listening, because that really helps as we begin to build this podcast. Today, I am super excited to have a very special guest that I've known for a really long time. Jacqueline Herrera Caprista's life has been a wild ride, marked with a three-decade journey in the entertainment industry since she was eight years old. Beyond her identity as a singer and an entertainer, she's embarked on a deep exploration of intimacy and sex and relationships, originating from a need to understand her own connections. This personal odyssey of self-discovery revealed mind-blowing experiences, and Jacqueline has found fulfillment in guiding others to a deeper connection and improved communication in their relationships and their orgasms. Life for her uh, is an ongoing journey of growth, connection, and joy, helping others navigate the complexities of human relationships. And so, Jacqueline, as we begin this, can you please <laughs> explain this? Well, there's a whole long story that goes along with that. <laughs> hello. Hello, uh, hello. Yeah, I finally, uh, I, I joke that, yes, you're right. I have literally been doing, I've been in the inter entertainment industry for going on three plus decades. And I, and I tell people that I finally found what I want to be when I grow up. Um, and uh, uh, after a failed first marriage and trying to find myself after that, I embarked on this whole sex intimacy relationship world and um I believe with all the mindful talk that is in the world now and have people are bringing awareness to this um I think we kind of cut ourselves off at the knees a little bit and we forget to include that sexual sensual side of ourselves and I think we it's all about stepping to our full authentic self uh, I believe and that's what my entire life has been <laughs> Except for this one part. And now that I found that part and it's like brought the whole picture puzzle into focus. And then it's like my, my world has exploded. It's been amazing. Oh, that's, that's fantastic. And so you, you work with couples directly on, on the intimacy. 
Yeah, I tended to work more with individuals. Um, and what what got me what I when I went into this, I wanted to work specifically with women who had had children and were trying to reconnect with their bodies and um who am I outside being a mom and who am am I, you know, am I still a sexual being? How how do I kind of like reconnect with that that part of myself? I struggled so badly. Uh, I had really bad postpartum after the birth of my child, um, tore my relationship apart. I jumped into sex way too fast. I was so hell-bent on the messaging of, so what if I had a baby? I'm cleared at six weeks. I'm going to jump right back into this. So much pain mentally and physically, and I wasn't ready. And I forced myself to have a sexual relationship so fast. (laughs) And mm-hmm. I, it just was awful. So I really made it like my mission to explore that and learn about that and learn why I did that and attacked it that way. Um, but in, in, in going along that journey, I realized uh, I don't want to just work with women. I want to work with all people, all sizes, genders, sexual identity, ev- like everything. Um we have done our men no favors uh, with social messaging, and I've been having a great time working with men um, and and discovering things every time there's a breakthrough, not only for clients, but for myself. So, yeah, I get really excited. I think it excites me. I just get so excited about it. Well, yeah. And so, you know, as you're working with with women, what are the main issues that you're finding with women that they're kind of dealing with in their identity and, and where they're at? The main thing across the board, no matter age, no matter demographic, no matter uh, social standing, is taking the, the, the self-worth, feeling that it's important enough to explore and work on. It's amazing to me how many folks will settle for mediocre, and not just sex, I'm not just talking about sex, even just intimacy, just settling for it's not that bad, it's not bad enough, it's not dire, um, and not wanting to take the time that, the time, let alone the money for themselves. They feel like it's, 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 you know, they're not important enough to work on that, or you're not supposed to talk about it. Um, that's the biggest thing. Um, as much as I'm, I kind of naively in, when you're in the industry, you're around a lot of people that are talking about it and talking about it openly and excited to talk about it. And then when you bring it to the real world, you still realize like, oh, there's still many people that are scared of the word sex, let alone talking about their sex life or what's going on in the bedroom or lack thereof, or that people, there are people that don't want to have sex and there there's the shame and the judgment around that. And so it's just getting people to talk about it mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. feel it's important enough. Well, and there, there's a, there's a kind of a hyper morality, if you will, particularly among communities of faith about the the meaning of sex, the the morality of it and all this sort of thing that can really get into a young person's head about who they are in relationship to it and then when they, you know, 
perhaps break free from a specific ideology, then they kind of, I guess, go crazy. And then they don't feel good about that either. And so there's a an identity that has to be built in the same way that you build your intellectual identity, your social identity. And then there's your sexual you know, identity that you're putting together that's just as important to these things. But I, I do talk to a number of young people who are severely underdeveloped in who they are. Well, again, it's because nobody wants to talk about it. And it, it and it's something that we kind of like we hit adulthood and you're just supposed to know you're so, and, and as a man, you're supposed to know what a woman wants, no matter if you have a conversation about it or not. And a woman is taught kind of to take it and take what you take what you get, um, because if you want it and you talk about it, then you're shamed and you're a slut or, you know, uh, any any number of, of names you can be. I was not raised in a sex positive home. I was raised, um, you do not have, it wasn't even a question. You do not have sex before marriage. Um, it's, and then the messaging around that was, and then when you get married, it's a chore, it's an obligation. Um, it's not something you'll enjoy. You'll get sick of it, but you, you should grow up, marry a man. And that's the only man you're with sexually for the, your entire life. Um, I did not follow in those, those, yeah, that sounds uh, fun. <laughs> yeah. Um, and I mean, I was, I was in a, again, so bringing it back and this has been while a wild ride. I have been in the entertainment industry since the age of eight, a young girl before the internet, before YouTube, before iTunes, before, um, social media, um, and there was no Britney Spears. There was no Christina Aguilera. There was none of those like young people that were paving the way yet. I was, I was going door to door to, to radio stations with, with my records and, and everything, but still the messaging, even from my parents was always look pretty, always be, uh, even, even if you don't like, you know, they, they, and they were, and I, I don't want to paint them in that they weren't protective because they were protective. They were, they were there every step of the way, but there was still this you always have to dress up, show leg, be be done up, have your makeup done always, never leave the house without makeup. Um, and and look available, always look available, but don't give too much, but don't be inappropriate. So it, when I got to this age, which after decades, and, and I'm not ashamed to say I'm I'm 44 now, part of it is having my own daughter and seeing holy shit, I don't want to raise her that, that way at all. Um, I want to give her as much knowledge and power coming into herself and, and everything and what that looks like for her. But for me, even starting to go like, who am I performative in every aspect of my life? Do I know what it's like to not be performative? Like, what do I really want? And what is my voice and, and my everything? I flipped everything on it, on its, on its head. <laughs> But I don't know. I'm lucky that I've surrounded myself that that I've always been choosy about people that are curious and kind of rebel against the norm. And I guess that also goes to, back to speaking about sticking with the entertainment industry, because that is not the norm, especially in the Bay Area. I am not the norm. And um, and there's always this fight for just being truly authentic to myself. And I don't think I knew what that meant um 
I don't think I could articulate, but I always knew there was a, a feeling of like, there's something more, there's something more I've got to dig deeper. I don't know. Did I answer the question? <laughs> well, you went in an interesting direction for sure. Uh, and, yeah. and so, so that, that, that word, I'm going to focus in on this word performative because a great deal of the image for you as a front lady in, uh, in the music scene, there has to be a, a, a sexual, a sexuality about it, a sensuality on the stage about it. Uh, because that is what is so, um, it, often appealing about, uh, about, a, about a front person. And then I'm talking about man or woman, uh, you know, because you're not going to tell me that David gone of, of Depeche Mode isn't the same thing, you know, uh, right. it, it's, it, you know, it, it is, it is a sexuality that makes the, the audience member connect with what's going on on stage, but it's also something that can be so horribly exploited in young performers. And I would imagine lead to some personal confusion about who you are deep down. Yeah, because you're constantly, you know, when I started out in the industry, it wasn't to be the best event band in the Bay Area that I now, you know, have. I I wanted to be the next big, huge superstar. And I was treated that way. Um, and the message, you're so young. I couldn't, I, I think part of it is, like I said, now I have, I have an eight-year-old. So my daughter is the same age that I was coming into the industry. And it has been so wild to kind of like relive this portion and going like, I could never imagine my, my kid being in that same position with all the responsibilities of an adult with an eight-year-old mind. So I really do feel that it affected me because like I said, the messaging was, you want to look available, but not, but not inappropriate to an eight-year-old. What does that mean? You don't know mm. what any of that means. And also the word inappropriate in itself is a judgy, shameful word. So already I'm, I'm, I'm getting that inappropriate is not good and not okay, but how, how do I know what's, what's inappropriate? And I think that kind of followed me all the way into puberty, into, um, uh, I had so many, um, grown men that would declare their love for me and that they had crushes on me and everything. And I was supposed to know what to do with that. I know what to do with that. I still don't know really what to do with that sometimes. <laughs> well, thank you. Um, but it, it definitely, it starts so young, this little, these little, little messages, every, every, along the line of, of what I was doing. And by the time I got to adulthood and funny enough, I, most of the people I dated were in the music industry because they'll understand because they know what the lifestyle is. They understand what it's like to have a, you know, a partner that's not always available on the weekends or gone for long stretches of time and, and everything like that, um, that understands how it is to get attention from other people. Um, but again, being like you 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 can be this certain person on stage but you're not allowed to be that person off stage but you got to draw people into you but don't do that off off stage and i i think with the when i use the word performative i started realizing i stopped performing on stage for me it was what's going to grab uh, another person's uh attention in the audience i think this will work i think if i do this thing a little bit more 
oh, they, they liked it when I, when I turned around and, and shook my, my ass. But I realized, I, am I enjoying this? Am I, am I liking it? How does this feel to be singing this in my body right now? How does it feel to be moving this way for myself? That started showing up in my everyday life, my life in, in my bedroom, my, you know, and, and going like, do, how do I, what do I like? And so just imagine like, if you don't have any of that, um, any of that awareness at all, like I had some awareness because I was in the industry that praises being sexy and everything like that. I can't imagine what it's like for people that aren't even uh, introduced kind of to to that side. You don't, then then you're just left to like, now, now you're an adult. Now you just know what to do. And you're just supposed to like, know how to move and receive. And it's just the, when I look back at it, it's just such an odd life. When I actually sit and talk about it, it's like, it, it's so hard to explain to people because now people see people like Britney Spears and, and everything like that. And don't realize that there's a whole industry of people like that, that aren't at that level of, of stardom and, and notoriety. And it's just a really bizarre life to live. <laughs> well, for, for the audience, look, I, I, as Jacqueline is telling these stories, I have these flashes of memory back to high school because we went to high school together and there were a couple of things that really stood out to me. Number one, you were you were personally branded in a way that none of the rest of us could quite understand what that was. This is the mid-1990s, and you were walking around with a jacket that said Jackie Lynn on the back. And you were branded, and you looked like a million bucks every single day, and you were different than everybody because you were operating on a level that nobody else could really quite relate to, but you had this tremendous talent that would come out every so often. So you, you, you played the saxophone in the jazz band and, and this was, this was the greatest (laughs) thing because you played the saxophone and then for one song you would get up and sing and your voice was so uniquely ungodly talented that the judges of the jazz band on the tapes would go, wait, what? You you have her on a saxophone for most of this? Like she <laughs> so so you're you're in this milieu of other students with this very your your parents are very conservative people. You're you're going to a you know a high school where you're 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 just at a different place you actually have a career and everybody else is, you know, wondering what, where they're going to smoke weed this weekend, you know, and you are doing gigs and, and stuff. And so, you know, you, uh, you, you had to have a, a lot of that as a part of your identity, like struggling with who are you as a young person? Who are you as a performer? Who are you like going into an, an adult life? What what was like that stage of life in high school like for you? High school was awful. It was um, because you have to remember too. I don't know if you remember this. I was homeschooled. Um, oh yes. From fourth grade through middle of eighth grade, because I had the bonehead idea that well, I want to go to high school, so let me go back to eighth grade so I can get my feet wet and, and kind of like figure out how to be back in the public school system in the middle of eighth grade. That's 
awful. I don't know yep. what I was thinking. You know, I didn't, I should have started at the beginning or just not started until high school. Being dropped into the middle of eighth grade was like the worst thing I, I ever did to myself. Um, high school was really, just for the reason that you said, I was so different from people that I was treated so different. And it was, every day was a struggle. Um, I don't know if you know this, but like every day we would have to leave because we had a, a little bit of a drive because we lived in Mountain View. Mm -hmm. And um, so it was a bit of a drive. We had to get on a freeway and everything. We would have to leave with a with enough time for me to retch in the parking lot every morning. Mm -hmm. Every morning and right before band, we would have to leave time so that I could puke. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and my mom would be like, why do you like, you don't have to keep going like, but I, I wanted the high school experience so bad because I had had such a different life and upbringing. No, I'm going to stick it out. And, and, and I, I see everything as a challenge and I'm going to win. I'm going to win that, that challenge that I've set up for. No, I'm, I'm winning this. Um, high school, the boys treated me really differently because they just, they were enamored with me, but didn't know what to do with me. Didn't know what to do with that. Didn't know what to do with those feelings that they had. Like I was, I was different, but, um, but not that different, but people treated me differently. I, I couldn't hang out like most kids did because one, I had very strict parents Two, it was like, Oh, I have a gig. Well, who wants to hear that? Like, you can't come to their party because you, you know, you have a gig. What is, what is that? You know, or I have a recording session or, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to be wherever. So high school was a really, really hard struggle. I only made it two years. Um, a lot of people don't remember that either. Um, I, I think a week before junior year, I hadn't picked any of my classes. I wasn't talking about school and my mom was finally like, a <laughs> like, what a, what's the plan? And I think I cried for I, like hours, could not speak. I just cried. And finally I said, I can't, I can't do it. I lost, I lost, I, I, I failed. I, I, I can't do it anymore. I can't go. I don't, I can't do it. And my mom was like, I, no one ever forced you. You could have come home at any time. But for right. some reason I just had it in me that I had to go. I loved band. It's funny enough. Uh, I just talked to, um, I, I can't call him anything, but Mr. Byrne still, um, we're in this, in some of the same circles. We ran into each other at an event, um, earlier this year and we laughed because I introduced him to my husband and I said, this was my band teacher. He let me play saxophone in the jazz band and didn't make fun of me for how poorly I was at, at, you know, at, at playing the sax. I said, he did, however, find out that I could sing and he, integrated me that way and made me feel a part of the band because oh god I was awful um on sax but I want I I just wanted I wasn't supposed to be in that jazz band by the way remember they met they meshed the bands because there wasn't enough kids to be in like band b or whatever um I wasn't supposed to be in that that band uh but I had a good ear and um but I couldn't read rhythm for shit and I couldn't solo for anything so every time I don't know if you remember this too every time they would we would do the thing where like okay let's solo we're gonna do this I would always have to go to the bathroom or I was always sick 
like never did that. I was like, no, not doing that to myself. We had an amazing jazz band when we were there, by the way. Like the musicianship was top notch. It was so good. Um, so I was glad that he let me sing. It's like, please let me play at my strength, which was singing. And uh, for my entire life, I've always known and, and I've realized that it's such a huge part of my identity. If I have anything, I have my voice. I have my singing. Um, I'm very confident in that part of me. Do I love my voice? What's funny about that is no, I absolutely do not. I do not love my voice. I do not think I have a great singing voice, but I'm good at what I do. And I, I have so much confidence in that, that, um, I worry sometimes of what's going to, what I'm going to face the day that I ever lose my voice or something happens in, in that regard. Because for me, as long as I can sing, I'm okay. I'm good. Um, that gets me through everything. But high school was horrible. I had a, um, I had a stalker in high school, um, a student um, that was there. I had a weird, I had weird adult stalkers. Um, and what was, I think what's different with the kids now that I see um, today is people are so much more accepting of outside um, of outside achievements. Um, I don't feel that that was the case so much back when we were in school. Um, I didn't feel like I could really talk to anybody my age about what I did. Um, it would be that I was bragging or I was, um, thought I was better than anybody. And I never thought that I just didn't have anybody to share what I was doing with. And it's just about wanting to be connected to people. Um, so I didn't have very many connect. I mean, towards the end, I was hiding out with you guys in the, um, band rooms all the time. So it was either I was going to have issues with my stalker or some girl was going to beat me up at lunch. <laughs> oh my gosh. That's terrible. Yeah. And, 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 and you know, you, you think back to it as the age that we are now and you go, high school is an awful thing. Uh, why did any of us actually want to be there at all? Uh, I, I certainly didn't have a great time in high school. And when you're talking about your, what you, who you were in high school, you were thoroughly driving outside the freeway lanes of what being a Homestead High School student actually was. You, you weren't in soccer. You weren't in uh, cheerleading. You weren't in, in in a scholastic activity other than you know band, which was great and everything like that. But your achievements were outside of what people could really relate to. Yeah, and and I wanted to do those things. I wanted to try out for cheerleading. I wanted to do other, you know. But it was, it was all, even from that age, it was really apparent that, um, you know, from my parents and God love them because I, I wouldn't have the stomach for it. My, my daughter's doing a little bit of voiceover work right now. And, and I, it stresses me out. <laughs> it stresses me out so much. It's so much. I can't believe what my parents did for me with no clue as to what they were doing. They had no idea. And I give them so much credit for that. But even as a young person, it was very much the pressure was um, by high school. Because you figure by the time we were in high school, I was 14, 15, I'd already been in the industry for years, for seven, eight years. So it was like, you can't walk away from that, that now. Um, 
you you've put in all this work you you don't have time to do any of these extracurricular stuff because we have put so much work into you we put so much time and money and energy into you so that's a lot of pressure um pressure that I don't necessarily think anybody should feel at that age but we didn't know any different and it's fine I'm I'm okay um but there was there was that messaging and um and I really thought I was gonna like I thought well, I thought it was a matter of time anytime I'm gonna get get signed and picked up and I'm gonna like be out of here anyway like I I had huge big dreams of of taking off and getting that record deal and um but to already be that far in um, so kind of being in high school, I loved, I, I wanted the high school experience, but I didn't love the, um, the, the high school kids in that, like, this isn't not that it, but I didn't, I didn't not think their experience was important, but it's like, I've got big things going on. I don't have time to deal with, um, pettiness or the, the jerk offs or, you know, anything. And I, I want to be here to learn. And, and I loved school and I loved academics, but like, it just felt like such a waste of time. And it's like, well, you know, and it was, but, it, but it wasn't, I didn't see that as, as being like snobby or being put off in that way. It was heartbreaking. It was, um, so sad. And I just felt so, um, so sad every day showing up. And for one, just worried that I was going to get, um, assaulted because there were, there were some things that happened a lot in, in school. Um, but just, just, I just wanted to be liked. I just wanted to be liked and respected. And, and I just feel like I just scared people and they just didn't know what to do with it. And, um, I, I can talk about, there was a time I couldn't even talk about high school, like even, even passing the exit, um, I would get sick for like three years after school pass the exit to school I would get physically ill still uh, and now I drive by it and kind of laugh that like you know or, or I've driven by and told, told my daughter like that's where I went to school it didn't look anything like that when I went there but you know and, and just how that that changed me of of um it made me really wary about people for a really long time I didn't trust a lot of people for a very long time and I didn't I never dated my age I always dated way older for decades um and uh, yeah, high school, high school is hard, even when you're not in an in industry job like I was. Um, I'm already seeing it with my daughter in third grade. <laughs> Feelings and, and growing up and you're all thrown in that together in, in, a, in a building while you're trying to learn. And, oh, gosh, it's, it's the worst. It's so hard. <laughs> I know. I'm just thinking about this from the perspective of being an older person and just thinking, oh, no, I'm not just like everyone else. This sucks. When, you know, you're, you, you were so talented, you were so unique and, and all of that. And, and you truly had this totally different, wonderful, high level thing about you. So you, you get out of your kind of younger years, you go into your twenties and you had some very lofty goals in, in high school and everything like that. Where is it that you go in the early part of your career? Well, what was really hard is I just, since I decided to leave high school early, um, I was 15, 16 and I, um, decided to go to Foothill college, which was, uh, the junior college here in the area. And then once again, then now I'm like, ah, oh, I'm where I'm supposed to be. 
I'm with adults, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm learning alongside 18 and up, you know? And, and so I'm like, Oh, okay, good. Now, now I'm home. I'm, I'm with people that are choosing to be here for higher education and, you know, yay, except now guess what? I can't hang out with them because I'm not old enough. So that that's how my life kind of always was. So now I, I'm with people that I, I um, connect with that are understanding and, and um, you know, it, it, they're, they're into it and they're excited for me and everything, but I can't go because I'm not old. I'm not 21 and up and, and they don't have curfews. I still have a curfew. And so that, then it was like, well, holy, well, motherfucker, like, you know, <laughs> great, you know? And then at that time, still in the music, I did, I was taking some music classes out at, at school, um, at Foothill. And what was great is, um, they were, they were paying me for the recording arts program. So I would come in and I work on demos and the classes there would have to um, record my demos as part of their class project. <laughs> so it was great. And I, and I love that. And I got to like, again, I'm, I'm with people that are um, learning the industry and wanting to um, expand and, and everything. My sister started singing with me by that time. And then, so that was really hard because I've gone since eight years old till 16 as Jackie Lynn, as solo artist. Now all of a sudden I'm a duo. Ugh, that was so hard because I didn't have the support because again, they don't know any better and they're my parents and they're like, this is great. Now, you know, we don't always have to feel like we're leaving your sister behind. She's a part of the, the package now and everything, but I had such a hard time. I wasn't given an opportunity to mourn the end of my solo career. It was, you need to stop being uh, a diva and you need to not be jealous. And you, you know, you're, you should be grateful. You should be thankful. Um, so I never got to have my emotions and I never got to be a kid in, in that regard. Um, and God love her. My sister did like a great job and we were great as the Herrera sisters, but it was a really hard transition and period where I was going to college, but not old enough to hang out with my college friends. And then now my career has gone from being solo to now being a duo. Now I have to consider somebody. Now I have to actually think about somebody that I'm performing with. Whereas before I never had to think about that. Um, we got signed, we got signed to a record deal. And my sister became severely anorexic and we lost everything. I was wondering if you were going to talk about this because this, I remember this was a very big deal. Yeah. Yeah. It was, it was devastating on so many levels. First off, we were scared that she was not going to, I mean, when people talk, it's, it's kind of sad. Um, I have this thing of where, when people talk about they throw that term around very loosely and, you know, Oh, that person's anorexic. That person has an eating disorder. It's a very loose thing. And people, um, joke about it, you know, all, all the time. I'm like, no, you don't understand when, when I say anorexic, my sister was, um, hospitalized. We were called and asked, did we want a priest or a rabbi to come that night? Because she wasn't going to make it through the night. Like that's, the level of anorexia that we were dealing with in our family. And it, the disease touches everybody. 
it affects everybody. It ripped our family apart. Um, it, it was really, it was, I, it's, it's, it's such a hard time to, to talk about. My sister thankfully made it through. Um, and I can give all the credit to my, my mother for that. Um, my mother was not going to lose her daughter and, um, my mom sacrificed so much of, of herself, of her own life, of her marriage, of her relationship with me to keep my sister alive. And I give my mom all the credit for that. Um, I think it's just, it's been, honestly, that was like, you know, 16 years ago or so, even more now by this point. Um, I think it's been up until about two years ago that I again, couldn't talk about it without getting angry, without getting, um, sad and, uh, uh, pissed off. Like, even though I, I grew up with the disease in our household, I didn't understand it. I didn't, um, I didn't understand it and I didn't give grace and I sure as hell didn't give forgiveness about it. It was, I let you into my life and we became a duo and then you screwed it all up. Like you're the reason we lost the deal. Um, my at that point, my parents didn't want to split us up. Uh, we would we were we were ha going to have to relocate to Texas because that's where our record label was. Um, I wanted to leave, and my family was like, "No, we're we're not splitting up the family, and we need to keep Elena well." And that that's that's just this is the way it's going to be. Um, and I was. I was angry and devastated. Like once again, like, where do I get a say? How, how, how does this keep happening? How do I keep getting so close? And then things, you know, fall apart. I'd been, um, courted by Warner brothers, Sony, Arista, uh, universal, uh, all these record deals. And we get so close and then it, it go away. And then to finally get signed, and then for it to go away because we couldn't fulfill our part of the, the bargain. Um, it sounds so callous, but again, like I was at the time 18, maybe 17, 18. And this has been my whole entire life. And um, if she would just eat, we wouldn't be in this predicament. I mean, that was my my way of thinking of, about it. Just freaking sure. eat something and stop doing this to yourself. Yeah. Um, so that was a really hard part. and. I then decided, well, I never wanted to starve. My my biggest thing was I would, and, and my, and my parents did this too. We would get so close to something. And I know that fear was always a big thing in our family. Fear, but you couldn't speak of it and you couldn't admit that it was fear, but we would get so close to something. And then I think everybody would kind of go like, ah, oh, this is scary. Like, this is really, this would be like, totally letting go of the reins and letting somebody take, take over. But when I started pushing out, like trying to push past that, I started um, being labeled kind of like um, the person that was uh, getting too big for my britches. I was um, being the, the problem child. I was being the, um, you know, not, not, not a, not including the family. Cause then I started saying like, well, okay, Elena's sick. She can't do this anymore. Can't, it's not going to stop me from doing it. This is all I've ever done. This is all I've ever known. I'm going to fly myself to Nashville. I'm going to set up all the, I have connections. I'm going to set up time. I'm going to go knock on doors and everything. 
Oh my God. You would have thought that I like just ruined everything, you know? And it was like, I did it on my own money, my own time, my own, you know, everything. And I just really realized how much fear really controlled my family. Um, but the thing is my family was the type that was very, um, the dynamics were always very loud, very, um, confrontational, very, um, uh, but, but this, this, we're a team, we're a team, we're a team, but it really was a way to keep everybody from straying too far because my parents were really fearful people. And, um, I don't hold it against them, but I just wish someone could have spoke to that a little bit more and acknowledged it that like, this is scary and this is new territory. And, and we're, you know, we don't want to lose our family unit. Um, and, uh, yeah. So when I struck out on my own is when things really started to kind of like hit the fan. Um, and my sister was sick for a long time. I mm. mean, it, it, it took a really long time. We would, we would play together a little, little bit after the fact. Um, but the other thing was my sister did it because I was doing it. My sister wouldn't have been in the industry had it not been for me. There was never a scenario where I would never be in the industry. There was never a way I was never going to be in the entertainment industry, no matter what it looked like. Um, I've always said that. Um, would I have preferred to make more money and, and everything? Absolutely. But there was no way I was not going to be a performer and a singer. Um, and we started battling on uh, gigs because my sister started coming to me and always complaining about things. God love her. Um, she'll probably not see this, maybe. Um, but she um, would drag her feet so much about things. Didn't want to rehearse. Didn't want, you know, always had something to say about the set list or complain about arrangements or, or something like that. But it would never help me with anything. And, uh, I finally fired the Herrera sisters and I said, um, I I'm done. We'll always be the Herrera sisters, but I'm done performing as the Herrera sisters. It's, it's shouldn't be this hard. Like if you want to be here, you want to be here and you want to contribute, but, um, I've got to do this on my own. So I went and recorded, I did a bunch of demos in Nashville and then I went to Vegas and recorded a whole album, um, by myself um with a friend of mine from the bay area that lives out there uh, has an amazing career talk about someone who has made a career of not being like this huge household name but is huge in the industry had tons of production deals has distribution deals and um is a completely um original artist and he's the one that produced my album and i'm still that album holds up to this day like it is it is one of my favorite projects i've ever done um, yeah. So that was like, that's like all the early part of, of my career and all along being like, again, from eight years old till 21 being the messaging being, you're too young. We don't know what to do with you because you're not, you're, you're, we, we don't know what that looks like in this industry. Because again, this is pre Leanne Rhymes, Britney Spears, all those artists. Then by the time getting to 16, that's when Brittany and everybody comes out. Now I'm told I'm too old at 16, 17. I was told I was too old hmm. because by the time I would come out, I would be 18. And now I wouldn't be, I wouldn't, the novelty was, was gone. 
Um, so dealt with that messaging and just constant rejection all the time. They're always looking for a reason not to sign you. The industry is not at all what it was back then now. I mean, it's a total different world. Um, and it's funny sometimes because my mom still has opinions about what I do now. And uh, she still brings up, um, well, when I was uh, in charge of your your career, like you, you should, you sh I can't believe you're still doing doing it and only doing it at this level it's like the you wouldn't know what to do like it, it's not the same thing at all you can get hits off of youtube and become a star overnight or still be working like a dog for 20 years and never get known so it's it's just it's such a roll of the dice and and just chance and luck um i know so many amazing musicians that'll never be known like they should be um so yeah, that was all, all my, my childhood, early adult life was all rejection <laughs> and, and having to navigate that, what that looked like, um, or what that meant and not, and be told not to take it personally, but I'm the one being rejected. So I don't know how that isn't taken personally. Well, and you're navigating not only this industry that is, that is unendingly fickle, but you're also navigating a very powerful family unit and a, you know a a powerful dynamic of um where you know you're talking here about having to like break with that move away from that to define where it is that you're going, which is always a difficult thing for a young person to do because you break away from whatever support, whatever control, whatever structure it is. There's hurt feelings involved oftentimes, but there's also a, a, a necessity in doing it for you to start exploring the next stage and taking the chances that it takes to really get somewhere. So you know, you, 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 you've got the, you've got these plans, you know, the Nashville thing and everything like that. And, and you're starting to go through your twenties, how, what you're, you're talking about rejection and everything. Where did things start feeling like you were starting to find who you are as an artist, as a professional? Um, I, I feel like when I did that record in that last record in Vegas, where um, I didn't have any, I, I sat with another musician that I really respected and, and adored. Um, and we went through songs that really, it was the first time someone said, no, I want to hear how you sing this song. I want to hear your voice. Um, and I was like, well, what do you mean? I'm singing like how I sing. And it was, it was really broken down. Uh, like everything had always been so greatly produced and, and, and everything. And I was always told kind of, I was directed how to sit, how to sing. But this was finally when someone said, no, I'm just going to play, I play it back. And you're just going to, you're just going to sing. I'm not going to tell you anything. Um, that was really hard. That was really, really hard. <laughs> Because I I never had someone just ask me to sing and hear what it sounded in my own voice without someone telling me how to do and what what notes to go for and what to do and, and everything. I don't think a lot of artists um, this today really know how they sing. There's there's not not many. Um, 
Breaking away from my family, I tell people, is one of the hardest things I've ever done in my life. It's one of the hardest things I think anybody will will do. I think had I gone away to college, it would have made it a little easier. I think that's like kind of the point where most people do that. And when they, they're away for four years and they're they're working on where where they're gonna go in life, but I didn't have that. Uh, and I, I lived at home till I got married the first time. Um, so until 31. Um, if I, if I could just break in on that, right, right, right there, living at home until you're 31 is about as normal a thing in the Bay area as, as you can imagine because of how tremendously expensive it is to go anywhere and do anything in the Bay area. Yes. Uh, and, and so younger people tend to live with their parents for a very long period of time because of that. Yes. However, it was, it was kind of interesting. I wasn't surrounded with a lot of people because also in this, this area, there's also a lot of tech now. Um, so people were definitely starting to like move out and move on a little bit quicker, but it's also culturally acceptable in my culture. Um, I was raised skewing more to the Mexican side because I'm, I'm my dad's Mexican. My mom's white. Um, which with, I say that with her permission. Um, that's how she identifies. Uh, and you, you stay at home, you, you stay at home. And, and a lot of times you raise your families together and it just, it's generational in, in that regard. It worked until it didn't. And, and what it's, what started happening is when I started doing these things of going to Vegas, of going to Nashville, I'm starting to see other ways of life and starting to figure out who I was outside of my family, even, um, how, and again, like I didn't get a chance to think how I wanted to think. I thought the way they told me to think, um, I dressed the way they told me to dress. Um, and when I started going out, I mean, I, I laugh when people think, um, because I was a musician for so young, oh, you must've been drinking and doing drugs and all this stuff. I didn't have my first sip of alcohol until I was about 21, 22. And it was on one of the trips to Nashville. And one of my girlfriends was a bartender and we went, you know, and that was like, well, there's no one to tell me I can't. And I'm also of age. So I guess this is the time to do it. Um, I didn't smoke my first joint until I was 37. Uh, I never had you done- smoked a joint. <laughs> I know. Oh, <laughs> it, it's only gone up from there. Um, this interview's over. Yeah. Um, I mean, that that's like how I just like people don't see that with with me. But um, I think it was more getting out and exploring more on my own. Um, I was driving back and forth to L.A. every week for a while. Um, as because I started getting because being in music put me in other areas of the industry. I started doing voiceover work. I started doing commercial work. Um, so I started auditioning more for roles and, and stuff. Um, so I was just out and about and, and on my own and having to depend on myself. Um, and I started realizing that um, it was really, really hard to have any kind of belief system outside of my, my family. Um, and there was such this guilt of that I was carrying with that they had you know, spent their whole lives trying to get me to this place and that I owed them. Um, and when I started working, funny enough, here in the Bay Area, and I got started getting into the event industry um, as a singer, 
from my professor at Foothill College, who um, there was a spot open in a band. She was going to be on maternity leave. And they were like, we just need coverage for a couple months. Great. Okay. I, you know, I'm a singer. I can do this. Whole other side of the industry that I had no idea existed. And what was funny is I knew two songs because everything I did was original work. I didn't know cover songs. I knew Boogie Oogie Oogie and Chain of Fools. <laughs> it's the only two songs I knew. Um, had no idea there was an event industry where you could do that. Well, when I started realizing that, wait a minute, I don't have to, I was, t- by then, 2021, I was already tired. I'd worked my entire life pretty much by then. I was tired. I was tired of driving. I was tired of flying. You're telling me I can sing and stay home? And just go out on the weekends and like drive to a gig and be back. And I'm making really good money. And since I'm living at home and not really paying rent, I contributed always, but never had to pay market rent. This is amazing. Like, so then I set my goal of, well, I'm not going to stop trying to still like do my, my thing. But what if I just become the best freaking front person singer here in the Bay Area and I can be kind of a big fish in a little pond. That became my goal. And I think I was just tired of the rejection. I was tired of, uh, like I said, I was just tired. I was tired of having to be in charge also tired of having to be all the, um, the weight on my shoulders of if, if, if a gig, um, it was all on my name. But if I was a singer here, I could just show up and be the singer in the band and get to, to um, you know, get my rocks off that way and be a rock star on the weekend and on somebody else's name and somebody else's band and just show up and not have to deal with the contracts and the work and all that stuff. Sign me up. Like, I was so happy to do that. So happy to do that. Um. And that's when things really started going bad with my, <laughs> because then I was giving up on my dream. Um, and, and the messaging was, um, you know, it was that total typical, like, well, you could, you know, you, you could have been somebody, um, you're wasting your time here. You're never going to, you know, amount to any more than this. Um, I thought you wanted to be successful, uh, you know, that, that kind of thing. Um, but I, like I said, all I wanted to do was sing. And if I'm singing, I'm happy and I'm happy when I'm singing. So I got to do that and and not have the pressure of, um, my family on me. Um, and I just kind of learned to shake off the comments, um, from them. Uh, and, and they loved what I did. They still, they still loved that I was doing it, but, but there was always this kind of, um, underground thing of where, um, but you should still you you should still be working on your own thing. You you shouldn't you shouldn't stay here. You shouldn't settle on this. But again, any time that I would like go to Nashville or I would go to Vegas, I was leaving them out. And you know who did I think I was? And um, I was doing it wrong. So I was just like damned if I did, damned if I didn't, kind of thing. Um, so I made it my mission to be the best um, singer here in the Bay Area, and uh, I sang with every band here in the Bay Area. I, I can guarantee you I've sung with almost every band. Um, 
and I was going to be the best one. Uh, I wanted to be the one that everybody called. I wanted to be the one that everybody wanted. And there would be times, every band had a different arrangement. Every band had a different, you know, had different choreography. And I was going to know every, every chair and every band and everything. And I did until one day I remember looking around going like, I don't know what band this is. And I don't know what choreography this is. And I don't know what part I'm supposed to sing. I was so <laughs> burned out. Um, and I was like, I, I, I think it was 30 by that point. And I was just like, I, I don't even like, is this, this today? Or like, you know, I, I, I was just like overworked. Then I got called to be in one of like the more elite bands that, that is here in the Bay area, this kind of top tier of bands. I was the first female singer they had had. And one of the things too, to point out is I've always generally been the only gal and the the industry is more all most of the musicians are all men and they're usually who are who the agents are and who management is and that's where i felt more at home with being one of the guys um and for better or worse and and it's been a, it's been a great ride i love it i love it but i i again don't think i knew how to how to be a woman in this industry I didn't even really get to be a kid in the industry. So now it's kind of standing, stepping into my power as, as a woman. But again, in this band, they were really kind of excited to have a female singer for the first time, but didn't know how to navigate the waters with a female front. And a lot of stuff came up for me in that I realized I was starting to shrink on stage because I didn't want to make the men feel uncomfortable on stage. I didn't want to feel like I was stepping on toes. I wanted to be accepted. I, once again, I wanted to be accepted. I wanted to be respected. So I started shrinking a little bit. At this time is when I also had met my, my husband, the father of my child. He was a musician as well. He was in one of the, these elite bands, not this one in particular, but funny enough, he had started and founded this band years before but wasn't currently playing with them and then started a whole thing of making a lot of money which I did not know was available to me in this industry in this area just doing it on this level I it was great for me because again I this is all I'm gonna do I'm not gonna I, I dabbled in things along the way. I went to EMT school. I got my associate's degree in Spanish and and always dabbled in school, but it was it was always gonna be singing. And I finally found the band that could afford me a lifestyle that was comfortable. I was in a relationship with somebody in the industry that understood it, that we got along and we performed sometimes together. And then we were decided we were going to get married uh, and I was going to move in with him. And what was funny is with my family, I never quite told them I was moving out. I just kind of like little by little moved things out until they realized I just wasn't there anymore. <laughs> they were like, uh, and I was kind of, so I think you noticed that my room's empty. You know, it, it was kind of like that, that that's kind of how I, I did things with, with, with my family. Um, 
And the messaging from my family was don't get, don't get married. Don't have kids, which was funny because they also told me don't ever have sex before marriage. So let's remember that. But, um, pretty much your life is going to be over after you, you have kids. And, uh, if you get married, like, you know, that's it. You're not gonna be able to really like do this anymore or, or, and at least if you are going to get married, get married way older. So here I am 31, like, well, I'm way older. I waited all this time. I know who I am. I've lived this whole life. It's not like I'm getting married at 21, 26. You know, I'm, I'm well into, I'm 31. My husband was 13 years older than me, a musician, knew what I was, and we got married. And then one of the first things when we found out I was pregnant uh, was, so what are you, what job are you going to get? <laughs> I'm sorry. I have a job that affords me a pretty good life. And isn't this amazing? I get to be home during the week with our child and I just need you to hold down the fort a couple nights on the weekends. I mean, this can be, you, you work nine to five and um, I'm home all week. And then you watch the baby on Fridays and Saturdays. Like this is perfect. And the first year of her life, she got to travel everywhere with me because I was exclusively breastfeeding and I was so, I don't want to sound like I'm tooting my own horn, but uh, my, my rule was she had to come with me or else I couldn't do the gig. So she was flown with me for like the first year of her life. Uh, and along with that, my mom would come along and keep her in the hotels or, you know, wherever we were. And my, my kid was the total green room baby. I'd be in the green room with, with the pump on. And again, one of the guys, but just pumping, you know, in the green room um, and, and everything. But that's when my whole life came crashing down. So like I said, I had a horrible postpartum. Uh, I had an amazing pregnancy. And let me tell you, I performed up until three weeks before I delivered in heels in, in all like two hour sets. And I had a great pregnancy and I loved being pregnant. And, but this is when anxiety started rearing its ugly head. And when I had my, my daughter, she was for one really, really big. She was nine pounds and, uh, pretty much everything that could go wrong after she came went wrong. I got really bad mommy, uh, carpal tunnel. I wasn't allowed to lift over five pounds. Well, you know, she was born nine. So how was that going to work out? I had a really hard time breastfeeding and I was so hell bent on exclusively breastfeeding. So I put so much pressure on myself that that was all that I was going to do. Um, and then none of my clothes fit and I was expected to get right back into performing shape. Nobody really put that directly on me, but that's what you hear all around you and that's what you see in the media and you see you know how I lost all the baby weight and how I look so great you know and and on stage six weeks after the fact um I was going to be that person I've always been fit I've been in fitness competitions I've been a dancer so and and Muay Thai fighter it's like that I'm just going to get right right back to it I worked out my entire pregnancy I'm going to get back to it couldn't get back to it um and 
I think what what also came up for me is I wanted to be a good mom. I wanted to be the 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 good mom, the good mom that you hear about. And that's when I really realized once you have a kid is like, what does that mean? Like, what does being a good mom mean? And that's when I really realized I had no idea how to think outside of my my family. And it luckily, right before I had my my kid, her name's Roxy. Right before I had Roxy, I started going to therapy. And it was a godsend. And had I not had therapy in place, I don't honestly know what would have happened during that year after Roxy came along because it was a very dark period. I fantasized about um, leaving. I fantasized about committing suicide. I was afraid I was going to hurt Roxy at one point. I hated the baby stage. I was so excited to be a mom, but hated having a baby. And, but more of what it was, I was convinced, convinced that she hated me. I was convinced that she came out of the womb hating my guts, that anything I did would never be good enough, that she would be better off without me. And saying this right now, I'm like, whoo, I could feel it like bubbling up for me because it's still um, the shame that I have around um, those feelings that I had. Uh, I've worked a lot through them and I've dealt a lot with them, but it's still, I can't believe that I felt so strongly um, that way. Um, I mean, I, I would fantasize, I lived in San Francisco at the time and I would fantasize about if I leave her, if I leave now, she'll only be alone for so long, but they won't find me. And, um, you know, and, and, and he'll be home in time and she won't, you know, nothing will happen to her. She'll be safe, but I can go jump off the bridge or, or do whatever. I mean, that's how, how much I was struggling. The thing, once again, that kind of saved me, and this is like, I don't know that I've really talked about this, is talking out loud about it. I had therapy, so luckily, oh my God, I still have that same therapist. So now it's going on nine years that I've, I go to weekly therapy. It's not, it's a non-negotiable. Um, I love therapy. We are a very big therapy household. Um, we have been through a lot together. She saved me. Um, she helped me save myself. And um, so therapy, but talking about things, and that's why I got into the sex and intimacy world is no one wanted to talk about postpartum. No one wanted to talk about the struggles of being a mom. Um, and especially none of my girlfriends that were singers and moms, nobody talked about it and talked about the identity crisis and the body uh, image crisis and the, um, the juggling. And all of a sudden you start seeing yourself differently. At least I did when Roxy came along. Again, talking about being performative. Um, lyrics started having different meaning to me. Dance moves started having a different meaning to me. Uh, and, and it was that thing of, again, social messaging all along of like, well, can I do this? Because I'm a mom now. Can I sing this, these lyrics? Can I move this, my body this way? Cause I'm a mom now. Like there was this, this whole thing of like, still not feeling like I could claim myself, but I was so vocal about it. So vocal that 
my marriage already was not in a great place. Um, we knew that before Roxy came along, but when Roxy came along and I was having this horrible depression, postpartum, everything, I was questioning all this stuff, being very vocal, but by the fact that just, just going along life. And if somebody would ask me, how are you doing? The worst thing I think you can ask a new mom is, aren't you so blissed out? Aren't you the happiest you've ever been in your life? No. <laughs> and I was very honest about it. Um, and I think, again, there was this pool of, I didn't know that I was trying to be fully authentically me, but I always had this, this pool to be that. So people would ask me, you must, you know, are you so blissed out? Isn't this the best thing? No, I hate it. I actually really hate it. And I'm struggling and I'm really sad because I thought it was going to be different. And I feel like I'm failing and I'm something's wrong with me. And my husband at the time, bless his heart, he means well, cannot handle negative feelings and would be helpful to me behind closed doors, but was very dismissive in public and with around people. And so when I would answer this way, he would quickly cut me off and tell me she doesn't really, you, you know how she can be, you know how, you know, Latinas can be dramatic and, and everything. So again, someone's telling me how I'm supposed to feel and not feel. Um, and again, it's not helping me because I'm getting in this loop of like, I'm failing. So now you're telling me I'm failing at that too. Like I, I'm not supposed to talk about this, but why didn't anybody talk about that? Now I'm mad at everybody. I'm mad at everyone. I'm mad at everyone that's ever had a kid. That's been a friend that's never told me how hard this can be. I'm going on very little sleep. I'm pretty convinced my kid hates me. So there's, there's that, that story I've made up and then start realizing a lot of it is just fighting to hear what my own voice sounds like. And it kind of reminded me of that thing of where going back all those years of what does my singing voice sound like? How do you sing? I, I don't know. No one's asked me what my voice sound, what my singing voice sounds like, how I would attempt singing a song. So when I started asking myself that, like, what is your, what is your voice? What is your, your voice and not your mom's voice? What is your voice and not your husband's voice? And man, I threw everything into chaos. And the biggest thing was, and, and this is really going to get into it, is in that band that I was in, lovely men, great men, but again, didn't know how to didn't know how to handle having a front woman, um, the dynamics that came along with that. And they were trying to be, they what were very, mean? very, can you, can you talk about what that means? Because I'm, I'm curious as a musician, like how, what are you talking about? For one, I was, uh, at the, even still, I'm, I'm more still younger than most of the people in our industry in, in, in this, these particular bands. Um, and they were all friends of my, my husband. Uh, so you can think most of them are like 13 years and older. They would forget how long I've been in the industry. So a lot of it was a little bit of that kind of, let me teach you, let me show you how, how this, how this works. Let me school you. But forgetting, I've pretty much been in this industry as long as you have. I just started at a way younger age. So even though I'm 13 years younger than you, I know what I'm doing. So there was, there was a little bit of that. 
there was kind of that high school thing that kind of crept back in where I think there was a lot of um, crushes that were on me an attraction, but didn't know how to handle those feelings and uh, speak to them or admit them. I mean, you're allowed to have crushes on people and be attracted and everything, but I don't think they know, knew how to, how to handle that. So I think it was kind of like that negging thing too, that comes up kind of in high school or like, you know, pulling the pigtails kind of thing. Um, there was a little bit of that full stop. The, the lead male singer at the time had just recovered from throat cancer. So wow. there's this whole thing of not only have I, um, we not had a female singer before I, he was having, he was dealing with the same thing I had dealt with decades before. I'm a front person, solo front person. I don't, need a you know a, another person here on my stage so I was very aware of that and very um very conscientious and considerate about like he needs time to get to a place where he feels comfortable having another person helping him out vocally um but also the thing of you're just one of the guys so talking to me like like the guy one of the guys you know, a lot of, a lot of sexist stuff, a lot of, you know, really immature stuff. And they didn't want to have to, you know, they've been a band all this time. I was going to have to be accepting of that behavior kind of thing. And me, honestly, because I've been one of the guys just got accepted it for a really long time. I want to be accepted. I want to feel a part of the group. I want them to like me. I want to be, you know, we're a band. We should be we should all be cool and friends. We spend a lot of time with each other. But again, I'm not listening to my own voice. I'm listening to just, just behave and be easy. Just be, you know, suck it up kind of thing. Um, but then the problem was I'm married to one of their friends um, that they've known for decades. I'm in this band. I'm now a new mom struggling with my body. Oh God, the outfits that we used to have to wear in that band were hideous. Struggling with my body with, with those hideous outfits, bringing my kid everywhere, pumping everywhere. There's, there's all these new stresses that I, that I have. And, but no, again, now, now in my working environment too, nobody wants to talk about postpartum. They don't want to hear about that. They want to hear that everything is going well and I'm doing great. And I love being a mom. And, um, I didn't have anyone to talk to. I did, however, have a really good connection and have a really good relationship with the drummer. His name is Kyle. <laughs> and we became friends and we started, the, <laughs> the funny thing is, we're all working musicians, everybody's professional musicians, no day jobs, we're not just weekend warriors, and no offense to any, anybody that is, but you know, we're free during the weekdays. I was struggling so much and trying to get back to some normalcy and not hurt myself, not, you know, and, and my thing was, I need to get back to working out. Kyle lived a mile away from me. I said, look, I need you. I knew that he jogged. I knew that he worked out. I'm going to get a baby stroller, the jogging baby stroller. I need you to come and take my kid for like 30 minutes, take her on a jog. And I need, I need 30 minutes to myself to work out, to go take a fitness class, to, to, I just need to move my body. Like I need to get back to doing something. So that's what we would do. 
he would come, put his earphones in, put Roxy in the, the stroller and run with her. And he'd bring her back to me and it, thanks. That way it wasn't like quite babysitting. And I didn't feel like I was asking for too much because, well, you're going to jog anyway. So just take my kid with you when you do it. And it was great. But then like a little bit, then you start hanging out a little bit and, and, um, then you linger and like, sometimes, you know, we, we grab, then we'd grab a smoothie after, or we'd go grab lunch. And then one day we went to the beach, we took Roxy to the beach and it was like, I just need a friend. I need, I need, I need friends. Um, that was like a, a big part of it too. And we were at the beach one time and I started to say something and I stopped myself and I was like, well, you know, you you don't want to hear what I, what I have to say or what I want to think. And he was like, no, actually I do. I want to hear, I want to hear your voice. I want to hear what you have to say. Uh Oh, <laughs> that I, somebody cares about what I have to say and, and what I think and in, in my own voice and, and is telling me what I feel is, is valid and is listening to me. And I'm not too much for somebody. Um, this is, this is nice. This is really cool. And so we started becoming friends and driving to gigs together. And then I realized I am developing a really strong crush on this person. I'm feeling heard. Someone's listening to me. I'm able to talk about things that I'm not able to talk about with anybody else. I told my husband, I told him that I was developing feelings on somebody on him. And mind you, I'd already for a year been trying to get us into couples counseling. I'd already been, I, I found, I found a letter I'd had written because he wasn't listening to me. I found a, a page long, two page long letter I'd written my husband listing out all the things that we needed to work on and, and, um, discuss and, and, and dive into but that, but it was me. I, I threw our relationship, uh, you know, away for another man. And, uh, then he, he reached out to the band and my, my husband at the time reached out to the band and told the band everything that was going on. And this is with the current drummer of that band. So we were told to stop it, told that we were being ridiculous and, and, you know, we were, you know, crossing a line and they wouldn't have it and everything like that. Well, I don't do well with those kind of, <laughs> those kind of rules, those kind of, uh, you know, that that's that you probably shouldn't have said that you probably shouldn't have gone there. Um, I was too far gone. I, I really realized I had a connection and all along in my life, I've never, people can have, have said like settling, like my parents said, I settled for the industry that I settled for here. I don't think of it as a, I wanted to be a singer and make money at it and be successful. I was making money and being successful as a singer here. So I didn't settle. I would it have been settling if I would have still been like trying to get a record deal, but was starving, living out of my car. Like I, I was doing great. I love, I love my life. I love what I'm doing. I get to, you know, I was playing with, with this one band. I was playing with behind big artists. I sang with Lou Graham from, um, that band foreigner, <laughs> um, Mark McGrath, uh, all these big artists. Um, 
And so it's like, what, what, I don't, I don't see a problem here. Uh, I didn't do that in my personal life either. I had too strong a connection with Kyle to settle for what I was dealing with in my current marriage. And I think being a mom and being a mom of a daughter started looking at, I do not take marriage lightly. I do not take making a commitment lightly, but I think we get so caught up in the, um, the old school way of like, for one, people used to marry because you had to, you had to, to keep the wealth going, or you had to keep, you know, increase your wealth. That's not the reason we marry anymore. And I was so in love with my, my first husband. Oh my God. I was so in love with him. And, um, I, I so wanted to make a life work with him. One, I didn't do him any favors because I was not willing to cut my family out for him. That was a big part of the problem. I, I take accountability for that. I, he was never going to come first because I still put my, my family first and their, their needs and wants first before I did my husband. Um, when Roxy came along though, I really realized I was settling for, um, he was never going to see me as a, as, as an equal. Uh, he complained that I made more money than him as an uneducated musician because I didn't finish my college degree. Um, so there are all these things along the way. And to the point where I love debriefing gigs, I don't know about you, but it's, I can go after a gig. It doesn't matter that I just finished singing for two hours. I want to debrief song to song and just debrief the whole thing. The good, the bad, I want to talk about it all. I want to talk about that look. I want to talk about that um, that drum fill. I want to talk about all the parts of it. So I would call my husband on the way from, from gigs because for one, you're leaving a gig, it's late at night. I'd be you know driving home at midnight, one o'clock, and I'm tired and, and have a two-hour drive maybe ahead of me. My husband told me, um, if it's not an emergency, don't call me anymore. Stop calling me. So it's like, all along the way, I'm just being silenced. I'm being told, I don't feel this way. You're too dramatic. You're, you're, you know, and then, then just straight up being told, don't call me. I don't want to, I don't want to hear it unless it's an emergency. And then even in other aspects of my life, I was told it stresses me too out to, to listen to you. You can't talk to me about these things. So I was constantly being told what I could talk about and couldn't talk about. And, um, so with, and then with Kyle, someone wanted to hear me and talk to me. And that was like the juiciest, most loving thing anybody had ever told me. And I blew up my life for it because I was not ready to settle. When you have a taste of that, you don't want to settle for, for what you are, are dealing with. And I figured there was a point that I almost ta uh, talked myself into um, staying and Roxy was a year old. And I said to myself, I can do this for 17 years. I said that to myself, I can do this for 17 years. And then I, one time I laughed and she gave me a side eye at one years old. And I laughed about something and it was very insincere and inauthentic. And she side eyed me and I was like, nope, I'm not going to give her 17 years of inauthenticity. And 
hearing in her knowing that already she's side-eyeing me at a year old like this kid knows you know knows things and and she's gonna grow up in a household where her mom like she knows her mom's fake laugh and she knows that mom doesn't mean that like it was just I I couldn't I couldn't do it I there are things I wish I would have done differently I did enter into I, I we did have an affair um it we crossed the physical boundary while I was still married uh I wish I hadn't done that I do not regret my divorce and leaving my husband for Kyle. Um, but I did do that and it blew up. I, um, he got fired from the band. Uh, Kyle did. I was asked to stay a year, uh, at least give a year commitment. And so here again, now I I'm totally in this position of where I want to still have a band. And, and obviously I now I need the income. Now I'm going through a divorce. I have a, my daughter was a year and a half. I can't be out of work. Um, but now I totally flipped the dynamic on its head and went to being in a band with people that I wouldn't speak with for a year that I ruined the band's life because they had to fire the drummer, which they didn't have to do, but that's, but I understand (laughs) like what, you know, I put them in a really, we put them in a really bad position, but now I'm, I'm going through being a singer, going through divorce with the, the, uh, scarlet letter of having had an affair. And, um, that immediately paints you as that. That's all the story anybody needs to know you had an affair, you're a horrible person. You did a bad thing. Um, it's all your fault. Um, look at the example you're setting for your, for your daughter. Um, and all my, Oh God, again, therapy, love, love, love you. Therapist (laughs) (laughs) therapy, 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 therapy. But that's when I found my voice, when I found my voice was when I was reading a book, uh, Dr. Jen Mann. I cannot uh, ever, um, I can't talk highly, more highly about this book. It's called The Relationship Fix. And it is such an easy read. It's so relatable. I love her. I follow, I've followed her for, for years and years and years. Um, but there was a, a passage in it that was, we, we look for people, um, there's a way more eloquent, eloquent way of saying this, but we look for people in relationships of, of people that you're, yeah, basically I married the, the male version of my mother. I needed my mom's approval so badly. And I, when I, when I took a step back, I realized that I married my mom the first time I married my mom. I married someone that I so badly wanted to, that I thought was so smart and that I loved so much and just wanted their approval and just wanted them to want to hear me. I wanted them to want to hear my voice and learn who I really was. And that's when I started this deep dive of who the hell am I and what is my voice and what is my voice outside my mom and how do I connect to that? And so this whole journey has been of me just really learning who I am and who I wanted to be and what I wanted to do. And I was given that permission finally by somebody. And that person is Kyle. And I give him so much credit. He's my favorite person. He is my person. Um, we, and, and one of the things 
about Kyle that is so, um, he's one of these people that we, anywhere we go, people are, I, I, I'm amazed by how people just are drawn to him. You, you, it's people that have never spoken to him, don't know him, but somehow they, they find way in our space and just want to be in his presence. And it's because he is so intuitive and sees people. And it was the first time I ever really felt seen and accepted for who I was and that my feelings were valid and everything. And also he was one of the first people that was like, I see how much therapy does for you and how how you keep stepping into your power and how you keep stepping more and more into who you are. I want that. I'm going to therapy. He's been on this therapy journey. And it was the first time that anybody has done that and like was ready to be accountable and, and really go into a relationship with me wanting to be also his full authentic self and learn his patterns and his trauma and his triggers and grow together with me in that. And, um, so I've always said, do I, am I, am I, am I proud of the way that I handled the, the end of my relationship with my first husband? Absolutely not. But I also would not, I don't regret going off with Kyle. I don't regret, um, choosing my, my person, choosing my partner, um, I wish we would have done things a little differently. I, and I think, um, but I think that's okay. And the, the biggest thing for me, the biggest takeaway is the second I could be accountable and cop to the things that I did wrong in my first relationship is when I started really doing the work and getting really, really fully being authentically me when I could accept the, the bad parts, the, the wrongdoings when I could um, take accountability is when I really realized also with um, it, it, it kind of just like, it's like one of those, um, one of those umbrellas that you open from the bottom and everything like falls out and it just all trickles down. Once I could do that with, with my relationship with my ex-husband, I also could do that with my relationship with my sister and see that my part that I brought to no matter what, what, what made me feel or, or say the things I did when, when we were going through her illness with, with losing our, 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 um, contract, just, it just started opening all the things up. Like, well, what more can I be accountable for? Because once I take accountability, then like everything just feels so great. And like, like I'm just authentically being mean, accepting all the parts of me and like, how much more can I, can I accept? And let all of that in. Because again, how I talked in the beginning about we cut ourselves off at the knees. If you're only being accountable to the good parts of yourself, you're leaving such a big part of yourself behind. And you'll never fully be authentically you if you don't take in all of it. I'm so rambling. Oh my gosh. No, I'm no. like <laughs> so, so this is something that, that I, so all the themes lead up to exactly what it is that you just said there. Because these themes of what you've been talking about you go to high school because that's what a young person is supposed to do. And you're beating yourself up to the point where you're vomiting in the parking lot because it's so awful and it's so unpleasant and you're being controlled by these external forces and you don't really get to be you because the more that you are you, the more that other people misunderstand you and call you names and everything like that. You have a family that there's a lot of control structures with your family. They, there's a lot of, 
ideas, specific ideas about morality, specific ideas about where it is that you need to go and who it is that you need to be as a professional and all these sorts of things. So you're going through your 20s really working to conform to this idea of what the the kind of professional that you are supposed to be. You meet your first husband who, again, is older than you and has certain expectations where you get married and he makes the statement, where are you going to go get a job? Like all of a sudden you're going to be working in the produce department of Safeway because you need a nine to five because that's the most valuable thing. And you're kind of going, what about me in all of this? You're trying to break out, but these big powerful things keep pulling you back in. And once you start really doing the deep dive into you and a person around you can see you for who you are, you're like, holy crap. Somebody can love me just for who I am. If I decided next week that I wanted to sing for a heavy metal band, he'd go great. If I decided that I did want to wash dishes somewhere, he'd go, um, great. Okay. (laughs) It would, it would be you being the arbiter of your direction and existence. And all of a sudden you're giving yourself the permission to step into your power to and and the ticket to that was exactly what you said a few minutes ago. I had to blow up my life to get there. I had to make a tough decision about my life, which made everybody scapegoat me for a while. Everybody, every hates Jacqueline. Everybody thinks she's stupid because she's finally stepping into who she really always has been and has been this bird in a cage trapped with these little glimmers of what true wholeness of who you are actually is. And you finally step into that with somebody who's able to go, great, you do you, let's do it together. Yeah. And how liberating that is. That's exactly what it was because um, what I really realized is that I scare the hell out of people. I I really scare people. Um, One of the things I did, um, you can't really see, it's kind of grown in right now, but um, when Roxy was, I had really bad postpartum. I mean, all the things physically that could happen to you after childbirth happened. I had really bad postpartum hair loss. Mm. I went in and I was like, just shave it. So we shaved the whole side of my head. And it, I remember. It's, like I said, it's kind of grown in, but like it's all, it was all shaved. I had an audition, several callbacks. I booked a big, huge national commercial. With my hair like that, but because I have such thick hair, when I wear my hair down, you can't see it. Um, when I went in for my fitting the day before uh, the commercial was to shoot, the director happened to be there. When did you shave your head? And I said, it's been like that for months. <laughs> you know, It wasn't like that at the audition. It absolutely was. It wasn't like that for the callback. It absolutely was. I got fired hmm. because I was told that's not a mom haircut. And I said, that's funny. Cause I have a year old daughter at home. So are you going to tell my, you know, how does that work? The funny thing is because they pulled out, they, cause they fired me and I'm sag and everything like that. They still had to pay me. So I got totally paid to do this job that they fired me for, but because I didn't look like a mom. So I went the next day and shaved the other side of my head. So I have both both sides completely shaved on, um, and I just went 
down to the scalp bald on both sides. Um, oh man, the messaging, especially from my family, you were such a pretty girl. Why would, why would you, why would you make, make yourself look like that? And I'm like, actually, I feel better than I've like, who knew, who knew this was the way I was supposed to look you like, I, it was only supposed to last for, um, uh, I was only going to do it once. It's now going on eight years that I shaved the sides of my, my head. Um, and I knew I was taking myself out of the running for certain auditions because, but again, here was another aspect of my life. I've lived all my life in the, in the box of what the girl next door is supposed to look like. So I can book jobs based on that look. So I had to keep my hair a certain way. I had to keep my hair a certain length, color. Um, don't get any work done because you want to look a certain way. And I was like, I have a kid now. If I'm ever going to do what I want to do with my looks, like it's now. Like I was, when I, when Roxy was, came along, I was 35. So I'd gone 35 years with keeping my look a certain way so I could book certain jobs. I just got, you can't see it really. I just got my nose pierced two months ago. I've been wanting this for years, years. And I wouldn't do it. And I finally, am, and I kept talking about it, talking about it. And my daughter wanted to get her ears pierced. And I was like, oh, I should get my nose pierced. You know, at the same time, it'd be like super fun, super cool. And I kept, every time I would go to get it, we'd make the appointment, I'd get an audition. And I'd cancel. And I'd do the audition. And I'd not make the audition. And then I do it again and again and again. And finally, my husband said, you are rewarded every time you step into your full authentic self. You've been wanting this. No offense. You haven't booked any of the auditions that you have canceled your nose piercing for. You don't make your money as a actress. You make your money as a singer. That's not going to affect your singing go do what you want to do and step into your power. Like he's the one that like really gives me the, the permission. And, and there used to be a time that even I would, I would be like, I don't, I shouldn't need the permission, but I guess I do to a certain extent. I need someone that like reminds me and brings me back to like, Hey, you, you, you can be what you want to be. And, and if I need to remind you, I, I'm here to remind you. Um, the one of the biggest things that one of my favorite stories of us is early on in our relationship, I, vulnerability was not accepted in my family growing up. You were not allowed to be vulnerable. You were not allowed to talk about feelings. You had to get over it and, and not, no, no tears, get, you know, pull yourself up, you know, and jealousy was not allowed in our household at all. And so there was one day I was jealous about something and I, brought it up to Kyle and I finally, it took me so much. I mean, I felt sick and I was like, I, I, I know it's not okay. And I know it's not right, but I have to tell you that I'm a little bit, I'm jealous about something. And he said, it's never wrong or not right to feel what you feel. So what can I do to support you? What am I, what am I doing? Am I doing something to make you feel jealous? Or, and, but it was like, wait, it, 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 it seems so little, but for me, it was so big for someone to tell me that my feelings were valid 
And then not only that, not like gaslight me and tell me, well, that's, that's a you problem. And to be like, well, what, is there something I'm doing? Can I, can you, can you articulate to me if I'm, I'm making you feel a certain way? Cause I don't want you to feel that way. I want you to feel seen and loved and supported. Um, and that's just constantly how our relationship is. We, we are able, what I'm proud of is my coming into my full authentic self and accepting all the parts of me. I'm able to do that for Kyle also where we can sit and actually have conversations where I don't make myself the main character of his story. If he's telling me something that's really deep and vulnerable and something that it would usually be scary to share with a partner that I can hear him as an individual and not make it a, um, we just had something that came up not too long ago where he was afraid to tell me about some feelings that he had that anybody else would probably be either jealous or insecure about. And I was like, I'm so glad you can share this with me. Like this must've felt so hard for you to, to, to feel like you were alone in this and everything and not immediately be like, Oh, he must not love me anymore. He must not want me anymore. And he must not be attracted to me anymore. But when you can start doing that for yourself, you can do that for others. And it just like the, the, again, like the, I keep using that word rewarded, being rewarded with the relationships that I want. I want authenticity. I want vulnerability. It's to the point where I feel like I'm, I'm so allergic to insincerity. It like, I, I, I have no bandwidth or patience for it. And I'm, I'm trying to kind of like give back to like, like a middle ground because I want, even if it's messy and it's, and it's dirty and it's chaotic, I want to fully connect with you and whoever you are on a authentic level. Like, I don't want the bullshit. I don't want the small talk. I want, I want all of it. And, um, I don't think I could get there if I wasn't willing to have that for myself. I, and, and I, but I, I just, I think, yeah, that, that's just been such an exciting thing. And like I said, that's what, what, when I went into the, the sex and intimacy world, bringing that, bringing that back in, I, Kyle was the one that I remember one day I said, um, someone just asked me a question. They asked me if they, if I identify as bisexual. And I said, am I bisexual? He's like, oh yeah, <laughs> yeah, you are. And, and I was like, it was, it was hilarious because I never like even thought of myself in that way. I was raised that you, there was no, any, not, nothing, nothing else to be, but hetero and you only talked that way. Um, so in that, in, in who am I sexually? Do I want multiple partners? Do I not want multiple partners? What does our relationship look like sexually? Um, it's to the point where we have sex conversations about, um, we do sex check-ins, like people do financial planning and everything like that. It's like, Hey, how, how have you been feeling connected to me intimately in the last month? Is there anything I could be doing more of? Is there anything I could be doing less of like making it a, a part of the, the ongoing conversation of our relationship and not just making it like, it can only be talked about when you're in the bedroom. It can only happen when you're in the bedroom and you just, you get, you get what you get. You know, and it's like having, um, being, being, just staying curious. That's the biggest thing I always talk with people is just staying curious and open to anything 
else. I, I started dabbling a little bit with a, um, with a pro dom. Uh, I, like most people, you think dominatrix, you think whips and chains. If you hear the word kink, anything like that, everybody thinks ball gag and whips and chains. I worked with a pro dom one day and we did, it was so funny. It's so, it, it's so cliche. Cause I have obviously deep mom wounds. Um, she said, I, I have an idea of, of a scene we're going to do. Um, and she, she made me kneel by her and put my head in her lap and she held me for 20 minutes. That's all we did. And it was me giving is power dynamics of giving power to, and control to somebody else. And it was the most healing, loving thing that I have ever had and totally changed my perspective about that. And I've been in the industry for a little over a year now. And it's just like, but again, like I immediately could have been like, well, you're a pro dom. Like I don't, I don't want to wear fetish clothes and I don't want to wear stilettos and everything. And it was like, no, we were in sweats and she held me in her, in her lap for 20 minutes. And it was beautiful and amazing. And I felt held and seen and loved and would never have been there had I not just been curious and open to like what other things are out there. And I, it's just, it's again, just wanting to be authentic and, and uh, I just love it. There's just the endless possibilities, endless possibilities. Yeah. Yeah. You're, you're talking here about the checking in with the loving mother figure check it being being there with total acceptance total total femininity in the love between the the mother figure and the daughter that's a very unique relationship and in that moment you were able to really connect in with that in a really meaningful way yeah i think um we, again, when people talk about sexual surrogacy, they think immediately sex, intercourse, penetra penetra penetration. Um, but there's so many more parts to it. Um, yeah. And and I think that people, again, get caught up in that. But for me, shoot, it has been so healing <laughs> to work with somebody like that. And yes, I can I get intimacy from my husband, obviously. Um, and that this speaks to another part of, of intimacy and, and, um, deep connection and a connection I, because we're taught again, it was some, this, there was an article I just saw recently about a woman who said that she doesn't, she doesn't like being a mother and there's no such thing as unconditional love. And immediately people were slamming this person, like just talking so horribly about this person. And my first thought was like, so brave, so honest, so authentic. Like I, I want, I want to know more about this person <laughs> because to, to step outside of what you've been taught your whole life, like, have you ever really stopped to think like, why do I think this way? Is it just because I've heard it so many times? Do I actually really think and feel this way? I don't think a lot of people do that. And especially when it comes to sex, I had, I was schooled by my husband. I, um, remember saying something about like, uh, you know, something about men wanting it all the time and, and needing it all the time. And, um, and he, him telling me like really early on, no, <laughs> you know, 
you probably think of sex more than I do. If I, if we have sex three times a week, that's plenty for me. Um, and, and, but, and it was like so jarring because what do you hear? Who, who, where did that start? Where we're told that. So we don't give our, we don't give men in our lives generally, um, a good, a good foundation, a good start, because right as they're coming into, to their sexual years or, or dabbling in sex and everything like that, they're immediately coming into it that they have to want it all the time, that they need to need it all the time. And if they don't feel that way, something's wrong with them. So men are coming into their sex years as, as feeling already inadequate. And it's just like, there, there's so much poor messaging. And again, like nobody really wants to talk about it. There's so, so many of the people that I talk with, nobody has conversations openly with their, with their partners about it. It's just something you're just supposed to organically know. And it's just not fair. It's not fair to ourselves and it's not fair to our partners. And, um, I just wish people would be a little bit more curious about it. You had mentioned early on about men and sexuality and what you've learned about it and the the kind of messaging and programming that men deal with and so forth. And in your practice and as you're working with men, what are you noticing about men that might be surprising? Men will generally, well, just just uh, like right off the, the bat, men will generally book first. Like mo most of my, my people that, that book are men and they'll just, there's an issue I want to talk about I'm booking a session. So first off, they'll, they'll put that need. They'll, they'll, they'll just straight up pay for it. Like, here we go. Like, I want to talk about this. Um, there's so much fear about, um, there's fear about porn. That's a, that's a big one that people talk about that they shouldn't like porn, um, with men. And the other is anal play. I don't want people to think I'm gay. And it's like, it doesn't because <laughs> there's a lot of nerves back there and that just feels good. But that like, there's a lot of that, that tends to be a lot of the, the thing. Like I want anal play, but, um, I'm, I'm not gay. And unfortunately with a lot of partners that these men are, are picking, that's what the, um, when they are vulnerable to speak up and that that's what they want in um in sexual connection women are telling them that's a gay thing like and shaming them um and it's heartbreaking because you're literally in the most vulnerable position and for someone then to shame you for for something um that just feels good and um and has nothing to do with sexuality, sexual identification or anything like that. It's just like, it feels good. Me, like some of my, my, um, my erogenous zones, my wrist, I did a exercise with this one person one time where we were supposed to be, um, touch your, your favorite spot to your partner's favorite spot. And I said, this is going to sound really weird, but it's my wrist. <laughs> Can I touch my wrist to your, hers was her nipple, but like, and, and it was, but like people, again, people don't take the time to explore. Like everybody thinks it's got to be, you know, your nether region, your genitalia or your boobs. And that's, 
that's your sex. Those are your sex organs. Like my, my, my biggest thing that I tell everybody, your, your biggest, most important sex organ is your brain. And then after that, it could be anything you want it to be like anything, but everybody stops short of genitalia and boobs. And I don't know why they're so like, nobody wants to explore like outside of that. But, um, yeah, I, men, men tend to book faster and want to actually talk and have, um, what's funny is a lot of them want you to tell them they want answers though. That's a little there. They want you to just, well, just tell me what to do. It's like, well, that's not totally how it works, but, um, so it's also like unraveling that a little bit. Um, funny enough, the one, there was one gentleman that wanted to talk about porn a lot. And again, a lot of, a lot of what I do is de-shamifying around everything. Um, he's been shamed for watching porn and, uh, he's, he said, I don't understand why we can't talk about porn. Like we have book clubs and we have, you know, movie thing, you know, and everything. And, and I said, I'm, that's, I, I can direct you to places that you can do that in a safe forum. But, um, I agree. Like, <laughs> it, I, I don't understand why there has to be so much shame around it. Um, I, I prefer obviously ethical porn, but like, that's a whole other thing, but, um, I don't see anything wrong with, with porn. So, so a lot of it is just assuring them that they're, they're not bad. And that they they're they're still lovable and they're still acceptable, even though they like anal play or they like to watch porn or whatever it is. Yeah, yeah, that's um, that's a that's a lot. Uh, <laughs> it, it's a lot for people because there's a lot of different things that are you know at play here. There's people's religion. There's people's uh, relationship. Maybe they are not in the same place thinking about these things as their partner, their longtime partner is. And there's not a similar, and so there's, there's a sense, am I okay? Am I, am I not ethical? Uh, you know, is there, is there something that is, uh, that is shameful about me? Like you're, you know, kind of talking about this, this concept of if, if I like this erotic zone, is there something that is different about me that maybe I have suppressed all these years? Right. Yeah. I mean, I, like I said, I, I didn't wait till sex. I mean, I didn't wait till marriage to have sex, but, um, I was shamed by, by my family. The first time I had sex, I was with my boyfriend of a year. I was 18 and I did all the right things as far as, you know, I was with him for a year. It wasn't a one night stand. It was with somebody I trusted. We were protected. Um, and I was so proud that I, I told my mom and I was immediately shamed. And, and, and it was like, what, what more could you expect from your kid? Like, what more could you expect from your daughter? Um, and I, I, and, and the fact that I, I felt comfortable enough to come to you to talk to you about it and share that with you share a personal you know i'm technically already an adult and i'm immediately shamed for um for my decision and um then i i think early on i knew then that like i'm never going to like i'm never going to do right by this person now as, as a mom the way i'm raising my daughter um 
much to her. She, she knows a little bit of what I do, but uh, doesn't know exactly what I do. She knows I deal with feeling. I help mama helps people with feelings. You know, first off, I'm a singer. I'll always be a singer first. Um, but mama helps people with feelings and, and how does she tell people? Um, because I've used a lot of, um, the same techniques with, with her. And, and she's like, um, I, uh, I've learned where to feel feelings in my body. And I am mom. I, I, I'm, we, we have such good communication. Yeah. She's, she's my daughter for, for the first year. I, I tell um, people she's made up for it tenfold. She's a magical being. She's so cool. She's the coolest kid. Um, and she's such a kid. She's so fun, but she's so in tune with her, her body and with emotions and with feelings. And I know I have a lot to do with that, but I've also refused to, continue the messaging of like, and we've been talking about that. She's going to start her period in the next couple of years. And I realized even with the work that I'm doing, I immediately started skewing that you're going to have a period because of this and this and this. And then, you know, then you, then you procreate and you have a baby. And then I'm like, oh, I don't want to do that to her. I don't want her to already like to start that journey with, this is the only reason you have sex. So we got through the whole sex talk where babies come from. And then I said, and then when you're, when you know enough about your body and how to consent, and, and we talked, we've talked a little bit about consent. Some people don't have babies, but they still do the act of baby making just because it feels good. And it's a way to be connected and, and to show love and to, to have pleasure in your body and, and everything. So, and I, I'm like, I'm going to have so many moms at school that are going to be pissed at me probably in the next several years, <laughs> but I wanted to make sure that my daughter is already being raised with the mindset that her body is hers and she's allowed to feel pleasure and that her body isn't just to procreate. And also even with messaging of where she ends up in life, she herself from a very young age has already talked about, um, getting married and, and, um, well, actually she talks about even from a, like at five years old, she was going to meet a man so she could have his semen so she could have a baby. That was the way she, she talked about growing older. Our messaging all along has been when you get older and you marry, if you marry, if you have a boyfriend or a girlfriend, like that's the way we always talk. And it's funny because she's the one that, that ha gives us direction, but I just wanted her to be raised in that no matter what she is, that she's accepted no matter what, and that I haven't assumed something on her of who she's going to be as she gets older. And um, I get a lot of kind of flack for that. But um, again, we weren't given any choice growing up of what was what was going to look what it was going to look like. I wasn't even allowed like my parents did not support my divorce um, at all. So I had even so I, I just, I want her to have everything she can from an, as early an age as, as appropriate, um, that she gets to be in charge of that and have, and find her own voice from early on. Cause I don't want to necessarily feel that she has to have my voice. I want her to, to feel empowered, to, to have all the knowledge and figure it out for herself as she goes along and not just what mom, mom told me it had to be this way. How do people get in touch with you? You can find me on Instagram at um, Jacqueline Caprista Coaching or my website, JacquelineCaprista.com, I think. <laughs> my band, 
which um, I would love people to come out to a show as Mercy and the Heartbeats. That's the band that um, we've gone on, my husband and I co-lead. He's no longer a drummer in our band, funny enough. He's a front man with me, but that's Mercy and the Heartbeats. And um, that's our, our baby. And I mean, people don't believe it, but we literally are together 24 seven. Um, and we, we wouldn't have it any other way. We love being together during the day. We love being, we drive to gigs. We front the band together and we drive home and debrief the gig, the whole ride home. <laughs> I'm my debrief partner in crime. So good. So good. And Jacqueline, thank you so much for your vulnerability for you being willing to show what real power actually is for you being willing to be so, so recklessly honest, so totally authentic and to talk about things that are so profoundly human and for you to talk about the difficult decisions that sometimes you have to make in a life if you're going to choose to live within your values. And that sometimes people talk a lot of crap about you when you do it. And that's what a lot of people who have had to make those decisions have to go through. And for you to tell a story with this level of total honesty and self-reflection, I'm just honest that you've told it here. So thank you for being here. Yeah. I mean, I, I still, again, like, it's never been easy. It's it's never been easy, and I just still always have to throw it back to to therapy. Like any like everybody needs support, um, and you need unbiased support. You can have you can have friends, you can have family, and it's great. But there's always going to be a little bit of of somebody having some kind of little ulterior motive, and um, to have that space where you know that you can go, that someone's just there for you, holding space for you and listening to you and helping you through the dark times, through the good times. You know, it's it just, I can't, you know, don't pick maybe the first one, you know, right away or, or you know, you've got to find someone you connect with. But um, I, I mean, and, and I know you know this, but um, I, I can't thank therapy enough for getting me through, through all this, <laughs> all this. Yeah. Yeah. It, it, it really counts to sit down and sort out your thoughts and find out where your actual power has been all this time. So no, well done on all of that. And to all the listeners, make sure to like and subscribe and to leave a comment on this video podcast. Thank you so much for being here. I am Jeremy Van Wert from High Altitude Mindset. Now go be something great.